Section 3 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Popular Outcast. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 2, Chapter 2 Women Voters Organize. It can't be done. Women don't care about suffrage. Once they've got it, it is a dead issue. To talk of arousing Western women to protest against the congressional candidates of the National Democratic Party in the suffrage states when every one of them is a professing suffragist is utter folly. So ran the comment of the political wiseacres in the autumn of 1914. But the women had faith in their appeal. It is impossible to give in a few words any adequate picture of the anger of Democratic leaders at our entrance into the campaign. Six weeks before election they woke up to find the issue of national suffrage injected into a campaign which they had meant should be no more stirring than an orderly and perfunctory endorsement of the President's legislative program. The campaign became a very hot one during which most of the militancy seemed to be on the side of the political leaders. Heavy fists came down on desks. Harsh words were spoken. Violent threats were made. In Colorado, where I was campaigning, I was invited politely, but firmly, by the Democratic leader to leave the state the morning after I had arrived. Quote, you can do no good here. I would advise you to leave at once. Besides, your plan is impracticable, and the women will not support it. End quote. Quote, then why do you object to my being here, end quote, I asked. Quote, you have no right to ask women to do this, end quote. Some slight variation of this experience was met by every woman who took part in this campaign. Of course, the Democratic leaders did not welcome an issue raised unexpectedly, and one which forced them to spend an endless amount of time apologizing for and explaining the Democratic Party's record nor did they relish spending more money publishing more literature in short adding greatly to the burdens of their campaign the candidates a little more suave than the party leaders proved most eloquently that they had been suffragists quote, from birth end quote. one candidate even claimed a suffrage inheritance from his great-grandmother this first entry of women into a national election on the suffrage amendment was little more than a quick brilliant dash with all its sketchiness, however, it had immediate political results, and when the election was over, there came tardily a general public recognition that the Congressional Union had made a real contribution to these results. In the nine suffrage states, women voted for 45 members of Congress. For 43 of these seats, the Democratic Party ran candidates. We opposed, in our campaign, all of these candidates. Out of the 43 Democratic candidates running, only nine were elected. While it was not our primary aim to defeat candidates, it was generally conceded that we had contributed to these defeats. Our aim in this campaign was primarily to call to the attention of the public the bad suffrage record of the Democratic Party. The effect of our campaign was soon evident in Congress. The most backward member realized for the first time that women had voted even the president perceived that the movement had gained new strength though he was not yet politically moved by it he was still quote, tied to a conviction end quote, 
which he had all his life, that suffrage, quote, ought to be brought about state by state, end quote. Enough strength and determination among women had been demonstrated to the administration, however, to make them want to do something, quote, just as good, end quote, as the thing we asked. The Shafroth-Palmer resolution was introduced, providing for a constitutional amendment permitting a national initiative and referendum on suffrage in the states, thereby forcing upon women the very course we had sought to circumvent. This red herring drawn across the path had been accepted by the conservative suffragists evidently in a moment of hopelessness, and their strength put behind it, but the politicians who persuade them to back it knew that it was merely an attempt to evade the issue. This made necessary a tremendous campaign throughout the country by the Congressional Union, with the result that the compromise measure was eventually abandoned. During its life, however, politicians were happy in the opportunity to divide their support between it and the original amendment, which was still pending. To offset this danger, and to show again in dramatic fashion the strength and will of the women voters to act on this issue, we made political work among the Western women the principal effort of the year 1915, the year preceding the presidential election. Taking advantage of the Panama Pacific Exposition at San Francisco, we opened suffrage headquarters in the Palace of Education on the exposition grounds. From there we called the first woman voters' convention ever held in the world for the single purpose of attaching political strength to the movement. Mrs. O. H. P. Belmont was chairman of the committee which signed the convention call. Women from all the voting states assembled in a mass convention September 14th, 15th, and 16th. There is not time to describe the beauty of the pageantry which surrounded that gathering, nor of the emotional quality which was at high pitch throughout the session. These women from the deserts of Arizona, from the farms of Oregon, from the valleys of California, from the mountains of Nevada and Utah, were in deadly earnest. They had answered the call, and they meant to stay in the fight until it was won. The convention went on record unanimously for further political action on behalf of national suffrage and for the original amendment without compromise, and pledged itself to use all power to this end without regard to the interest of any existing political party. Two emissaries, Sarah Bard Field and Frances Joliffe, both of California, were commissioned by women voters at the final session where more than ten thousand people were present to go to the president and congress bearing these resolutions and hundreds of thousands of signatures upon a petition gathered during the summer they would speak directly to the president lest he should be inclined to take lightly the women voters resolutions the envoys symbolic of the new strength that was to come out of the west made their journey across continent by automobile they created a sensation all along the way received as they were by governors by mayors by officials high and low and by the populace thousands more added their names to the petition and it was rolled up to gigantic proportions until in december when unrolled it literally stretched over miles as it was borne to the capital with honor escorts the action of the convention scarcely cold, and the envoys midway across the continent. The president hastened to New Jersey to cast his vote for suffrage in a state referendum. He was careful to state that he did so as a private citizen, quote, not as the leader of my party in the nation, end quote. 
he repeated his position putting the emphasis upon his opposition to national suffrage rather than on his belief in suffrage for his state Quote, i believe that it should be settled by the states and not by the national government and that in no circumstances should it be made a party question and my view has grown stronger at every turn of the agitation End quote. he knew women were asking the powerful aid of the president of the united states not the aid of mr wilson of princeton new jersey the state amendment in new jersey was certain to fail as president wilson well knew casting a vote for it would help his case with women voters and still not bring suffrage in the east a step nearer the envoy's reception at the capitol was indeed dramatic thousands of women escorted them amid bands and banners to the halls of congress where they were received by senators and representatives and addressed with eloquent speeches the envoys replied by asking that their message be carried by friends of the measure to the floor of the senate and house and this was done the envoys waited upon the president at the white house this visit of the representatives of women with power marked rather an advance in the president's position he listened with an eager attention to the story of the new-found power and what women meant to do with it for the first time on record he said he had quote, an open mind end quote, on the question of national suffrage and would confer with his party colleagues the republican and democratic national committees heard the case of the envoys they were given a hearing before the senate suffrage committee and before the house judiciary in one of the most lively and entertaining inquisitions in which women ever participated no more questions on mother and home no swangson on the passing of charm and womanly loveliness only agile scrambling by each committee member to ask with eagerness and some heat Quote, well, if this amendment has not passed Congress by then, what will you do in the elections of 1916? It was with difficulty that the women were allowed to tell their story, so eager was the committee to jump ahead to political consequences. Quote, Sirs, that depends upon what you gentlemen do. We are asking a simple thing. End quote. But they never got any further from the main base of their interest. Quote, if President Wilson comes out for it and his party does not, end quote, from a Republican member, quote, will you, quote, quote, I object to introducing partisan discussions here, end quote, came shamelessly from a Democratic colleague, and so the hearing passed in something of a verbal riot, but with no doubt as to the fact that congressmen were alarmed by the prospect of women voting as a protest group. The new year found the Senate promptly reporting the measure favorably again, but the Judiciary Committee footballed it to its subcommittee, back to the whole committee, postponed it, marked time, dodged, defeated it. The problem of neutrality toward the European war was agitating the minds of political leaders. Nothing like suffrage for women must be allowed to rock the ship even slightly. Oh no, indeed. It was men's business to keep the nation out of war men never had shown marked skill at keeping nations out of war in the history of the world but never mind logic must not be pressed too hard upon the reasoning sex this time men would do it the exciting national election contest was approaching party conventions were scheduled to meet in june while the amendment languished at the capitol it was clear that more highly organized woman power would have to be called into action before the national government would speed its pace to the women voters the eastern women went for decisive assistance 
a car known as the suffrage special carrying distinguished eastern women and gifted speakers made an extensive tour of the west and under the banner of the congressional union called again upon the women voters to come to chicago on june fifth to form a new party the woman's party to serve as long as should be necessary as the balance of power in national contests and thus to force action from the old parties the instant response which met this appeal surpassed the most optimistic hopes thousands of women assembled in chicago for this convention which became epic-making not only in the suffrage fight but in the whole woman movement for the first time in history women came together to organize their political power into a party to free their own sex for the first time in history representatives of men's political parties came to plead before these women voters for the support of their respective parties the Republican Party sent as its representative John Hayes Hammond and C.S. Osborne, formerly governor of Michigan. The Democrats sent their most persuasive orator, President Wilson's friend Dudley Field Malone, collector of the Port of New York. Alan Benson, candidate for the presidency on the Socialist ticket, represented the Socialist Party. Edward Poling, Prohibition leader, spoke for the Prohibition Party arid victor murdoch and gifford pinchot for the progressive party all laid their claims for suffrage support before the women with the result that the convention resolved itself into another political party the woman's party a new party with but one plank the immediate passage of the federal suffrage amendment a party determined to withhold its support from all existing parties until women were politically free and to punish politically any party in power which did not use its power to free women a party which became a potent factor of protest in the following national election the first step towards the solidarity of women quickly brought results the republican national convention meeting immediately after the women's party convention and the democratic national convention the week following both included suffrage planks in their national platforms for the first time in history to be sure they were planks that failed to satisfy us but the mere hint of organized political action on suffrage had moved the two dominant parties to advance a step the new woman's party had declared suffrage a national political issue the two major parties acknowledged the issue by writing it into their party platforms the republican platform was vague and indefinite on national suffrage the democratic party made its suffrage plank specific against action by congress it precisely said quote, we recommend the extension of the franchise to the women of the country by the states upon the same terms as men it was openly stated at the democratic convention by leading administration democrats that the president himself had written this suffrage plank if the republicans could afford to write a vague and indefinite plank the president and his party could not they as the party in power had been under fire and were forced to take sides they did so the president chose the plank and his subordinates followed his lead it may be remarked in passing that this declaration so solidified the opposition within the president's party that when the president ultimately sought to repudiate it he met stubborn resistance protected by the president's plank the democratic congress continued to block national suffrage it would not permit it even to be reported from the judiciary committee the party platform was written 
the president too found it easy to hide behind the plank which he himself had written counting on women to be satisfied to mrs d e hooker of richmond virginia who as a delegate from the virginia federation of labor representing sixty thousand members went to him soon after to ask his support of the amendment the president said quote, i am opposed by conviction and political traditions to federal action on this question moreover after the plank which was adopted in the democratic platform at st louis i could not comply with the request contained in this resolution even if i wished to do so End quote. president wilson could not act because the party plank which he had written prevented him from doing so meanwhile the women continued to protest miss mabel vernon of delaware beloved and gifted crusader was the first member of the woman's party to commit a militant act president wilson speaking at the dedication services of the labor temple in washington was declaring his interest in all classes and all struggles he was proclaiming his beliefs in the abstractions of liberty and justice when miss vernon who was seated on the platform from which he was speaking said in her powerful voice quote, mr president if you sincerely desire to forward the interest of all the people why do you oppose the national enfranchisement of women End quote. instant consternation arose but the idea had penetrated to the farthest corner of the huge assembly that women were protesting to the president against the denial of their liberty the president found time to answer quote, that is one of the things which we will have to take counsel over later End quote, and resumed his speech Miss Vernon repeated her question later and was ordered from the meeting by the police. As the summer wore on, women realized that they would have to enter the national contest in the autumn. Attention was focused on the two rival presidential candidates, Woodrow Wilson and Charles Evans Hughes, the Republican nominee, upon whom the new Women's Party worked diligently for prompt statements of their position on the national amendment. The next political result of the new solidarity of women was Mr. Hughes' declaration on August 1, 1916, quote, My view is that the proposed amendment should be submitted and ratified and the subject removed from political discussion, end quote. The Democratic Congress adjourned without even reporting the measure to that body for a vote and went forthwith to the country to ask re-election we also went to the country we went to the women voters to lay before them again the democratic party's record now complete through one administration we asked women voters again to withhold their support nationally from president wilson and his party the president accepted at once the opportunity to speak before a convention of suffragists at atlantic city in an effort to prove his great belief in suffrage he said poetically quote, the tide is rising to meet the moon you can afford to wait, end quote. Whatever we may have thought of his figure of speech, we disagreed with his conclusion. The campaign on Democratic speakers throughout the West found an unexpected organized force among women, demanding an explanation of the past conduct of the Democratic Party and insisting on an immediate declaration by the President in favor of the amendment. Democratic orators did their utmost to meet this opposition. Quote, Give the president time, he can't do everything at once, end quote. Quote, trust him once more, he will do it for you next term, end quote. Quote, he kept us out of war, he is the best friend the mothers of the nation ever had, end quote. Quote, he stood by you, now you women stand by him, end quote. Quote, 
What good will votes do you if the Germans come over here and take your country? End quote. And so on. Enticing doctrine to women, the peace lovers of the human race. Although we entered this contest with more strength than we had in 1914, with a budget five times as large, and with piled up evidence of democratic hostility, we could not have entered a more difficult contest. The people were excited to an almost unprecedented pitch over the issue of peace versus war, in spite of the difficulty of competing with this emotional issue, which meant the immediate disposal of millions of lives. It was soon evident that the two issues were running almost neck and neck in the western territory. No less skilled a campaigner than William Jennings Bryan took the stump in the West against the women's party. At least a third of each speech was devoted to suffrage. He urged, he exhorted, he apologized, he explained, he pleaded, he condemned. Often he was heckled. Often he saw a huge, quote, vote against Wilson, he kept us out of suffrage, end quote, banners at the doors of his meetings. One woman in Arizona, who unable longer to listen and patient to the glory of, quote, a democracy where only were governed those who consented, end quote, interrupted him. He coldly answered, quote, Madam, you cannot pick cherries before they are ripe, end quote. By the time he got to California, however, the cherries had ripened considerably, for Mr. Bryan came out publicly for the National Amendment. What was true of Mr. Bryan was true of practically every Democratic campaigner. Against their wills they were forced to talk about suffrage, although they had serenely announced at the opening of the campaign that it was, quote, not an issue in this campaign, end quote. Some merely apologized and explained. Others, like Dudley Field Malone, spoke for the federal amendment and promised to work to put it through the next Congress, quote, if only you women will stand by Wilson and return him to power, end quote. Space will not permit in this book to give more than a hint of the scope and strength of our campaign. If it were possible to give a glimpse of the speeches made by men in the campaign, you would agree that it was not peace alone that was the dominant issue, but peace and suffrage. It must be made perfectly clear that the Woman's Party did not attempt to elect Mr. Hughes. It did not feel strong enough to back a candidate in its first battle, and did not conduct its fight affirmatively at all. No speeches were made for Mr. Hughes and the Republican Party. The appeal was to vote a vote of protest against Mr. Wilson and his congressional candidates, because he and his party had had the power to pass the amendment through Congress and had refused to do so. That left the women free to choose from among the Republicans, Socialists, and Prohibitionists. It was to be expected that the main strength of the vote taken from Mr. Wilson would go to Mr. Hughes, as few women perhaps threw their votes to the minority parties. But just as the progressive party's protest had been effective in securing progressive legislation without winning the election, so the Woman's Party hoped its protest would bring results in Congress without attempting to win the election. History will never know in round numbers how many women voted against the president and his party at this crisis, for there are no records kept for men and women separately, except in one state, in Illinois. The women there voted two to one against Mr. Wilson and for Mr. Hughes. Men outnumber women throughout the entire western territory, in some states two and three to one, in Nevada still higher. 
But whereas in the election of 1912, President Wilson got 69 electoral votes from the suffrage states, in the 1916 election, when the whole West was aflame for him because of his peace policy, he only got 57. Enthusiasm for Mr. Hughes in the West was not sufficiently marked to account entirely for the loss of these 12 electoral votes. Our claim that democratic opposition to suffrage had cost many of them was never seriously denied. The Democratic Judiciary Committee of the House, which had refused to report suffrage to the House for a vote, had only one Democratic member from a suffrage state, Mr. Taggart of Kansas, standing for re-election. This was the only spot where women could strike out against the action of this committee and Mr. Taggart. They struck with success. He was defeated almost wholly by the women's votes. With a modest campaign fund of slightly over $50,000, raised almost entirely in small sums, the women had forced the campaign committee of the Democratic Party to assume the defensive and to practically double expenditure and work on this issue. As much literature was used on suffrage as on peace in the suffrage states. Many Democrats, although hostile to our campaign, said without qualification that the Woman's Party protest was the only factor in the campaign which stemmed the Western tide toward Wilson, and which finally made California the pivotal state and left his election in doubt for a week. Again, with more force, national suffrage had been injected into a campaign where it was not wanted, where the leaders had hoped the single issue of peace would hold the center of the stage. Again, many women had stood together on this issue and put woman suffrage first, and the actual re-election of President Wilson had its point of advantage too, for it enabled us to continue the education of a man in power who had already had four years of lively training on the woman question. End of section 3